okay. <laughs> so in, in the real movie Aladdin, not this new weird one with blue Will Smith, the real Aladdin from 1992, there's that beautiful moment where Aladdin's standing on the magic carpet. He's floating. He's outside the castle. He reaches out for Jasmine's hand. Do you remember what he asked her? Do you trust me? Do you trust me? And she jumps. Our text reminds me of, of that. There's hard and holy stuff here. So whenever we come to any passage in the scripture that is difficult, and just let's get this out of the gate right away. This is not, there's no fire and brimstone here. There's no anger and judgment and yelling. There's no bait and switch. Didn't we just hear about God's grace at the baptismal, Paul? No. This is all grace. This is God's mercy. And the first question that comes to us in, in the text that is difficult for us is, will we trust him? Will we trust God at his word? Will I trust God for the places in which God's word indeed, this long list of sins that Paul goes through that affect me, that confront me, that show me my idols? Paul is searching our hearts. Will we trust the Holy Spirit to not abuse us, to not demean us, to not destroy us, but that he has for us life and life to the full? Will we trust God that he is the potter and we are the clay? So this is a hard one. I'll tell you, I wrestled with this sermon and prayed over this sermon more than I have maybe any other all the way back to, you know, when we were in Ephesians 5 together. Because I'm well aware of the challenges of this text. Not just culturally, but for me, existentially, for the people that we love and care about. But the real reason this is a hard text for me is because I'm here. I'm in this text. And you are too. The church has done so much damage with pericopes like this one, paragraphs like this one, by making something the main point that's actually not the main point. And the modern American church often does this in the midst of our gluttony and our greed so that we can deflect and hide behind our respectable sins by conveniently thinking we might hobby horse a one. But don't forget about verses 28 through 32, where Paul brings up the problem of gossip. One pastor this week said, and I quote, I love this quote, gossip is pornography of the mouth. It objectifies other humans. It seeks an emotional rush at another's expense. It requires zero love, commitment, or accountability to the one being objectified. Indeed, gossip is one of the most overlooked problems in the life of the modern church. And it often comes subtly. Complaint, grumbling, prayer request. And then there's boastfulness. I mean, if that doesn't describe social media culture in a nutshell, I don't know what does. Apparently, Paul had Instagram. These are the kind of people who have to humble brag about everything. Look what I did. Look where I went. Look what I ate as we watch and sink deeper into depression. 
And then there's disobedience to parents. But my parents are here, so we'll just keep going. <laughs> Look, I'm 37, but you don't outgrow the fifth commandment. And of course, Paul does address our sexuality. We talked a little bit about this at the last men's dinner. We talked as men humbly about the challenges of our struggles with lust, wanting to take something which is not ours, not believing God's good promise in his covenant. We talked about pornography. We talked about how, how easy it is and how invisible it is to struggle with our sin and then just show up on Sunday with collared shirts and carry on. So this is a hard text for us all. But let me repeat, God is not here to demean or destroy us, but to deepen our knowledge and our faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior. God has means to set us free. Romans is not a theological treatise. It is not a position paper that Paul, the academician, writes to the church in Rome. It is a letter to a real church filled with real people. And so I'm asking you, even if it requires suspending disbelief for a moment, to trust me that Paul has not completely flipped his script from the first 10 verses of the letter, where he refers to these people as saints who are loved and called. And yet we might wonder, well, geez, this is tough stuff. I don't really feel safe with these things. And then someone will recall, you know, Aslan, the lion's presence and someone's comment to Lucy, you know, no, he's not, he's not safe, Lucy, but he is good. And that's, not, that's true. When it comes to our comforts, when it comes to our idols and our addictions, in one sense, we're not safe before God, and yet he is good to shepherd us through those things. But in another sense, and this is important, this is the safest place we could be. The safest place we could be is with a God who knows us, made us, loved us, loves us, is willing to be honest with us. If you go to the doctor and you have cancer and you walk in and your doctor goes, oh, you're cool. He's looking at the x-rays, nothing to see here. He doesn't want to upset you. He doesn't want to discomfort you. He doesn't want the truth to be unsafe. That's no great physician at all. So this is actually the safest place to be where God speaks his truth to us in love. And again, I'm asking, would you wait with me in this text to believe that there's actually a lot of gospel here? I know it seems crazy and abrupt to go from verse 16 and 17 straight to wrath, but I'll explain that. I'm asking you to wait and believe that Paul is not a schizophrenic but that the gospel is alpha to omega in the book of Romans, and there's good news here. Now, here's Paul's burden. Okay, here's the main point. Here's the, the burden that Paul has for us in this section. Do not exchange the glory of the gospel, verse 16 and 17. It's the power of God. It saves sinners. Do not exchange the glory of God in this good news that Jesus saves for gods of your own making. Do not suppress the truth. Don't try to be your own God. Don't exchange the glory because when you do, entropy kicks in. 
Decay begins to happen. It's a slippery slope. And so the question of this back half of Romans 1 is simply this. Will you trust me? Will you trust me that I not only made you, but I know what is best for you as my children? I want us to hear that as we proceed. God speaking the question to you. Wherever you are found in this long list, will you trust me? That I, God's not here to break a bruised reed. He's not here to put out a faintly burning wick. He's here to bring truth in love so that we might have more hope in Jesus, not less. Will you trust me? And I think Paul works this out in, you know, kind of three main points. Of course, he's a pastor, so there's three points. First of all, will you trust me as I, as I walk with you? As I walk with you in real time. Again, a letter to real people in a real sociocultural space and place in time. And you're going to just miss what this is about if you don't get the context. What in the world is Paul doing with three chapters of protracted treaties on human sinfulness? Addressing the Gentiles and then the Jews and then wrapping everybody up in a bow. There's no one righteous, not one. Three chapters, Paul? Couldn't you just skip to chapter 3, verse 21? Couldn't you just skip all that and just get us to, yeah, okay, we're all sinners, boom. Let's get to Abraham and grace and the faithfulness of God. No, there's a context here. So understand this, Paul's aim, so important. Paul's aim here is pastoral. Will you trust me as I walk with you? His aim is pastoral. You see, the Jews and the Gentiles are fighting. There is a struggle of power in the church. Imagine that. There's a power struggle in the church. People aren't getting along. It's a family and they're infighting. It's hard to believe. The Jews and the Gentiles are fighting. The Jews fall back on their place of power. Namely, we have the Old Testament scriptures. We're the chosen people. What have you ever done? And the Gentiles fall back on their position of power. Hey, simmer down. This church is getting bigger now. It's mostly Gentiles. And by the way, take a look around the empire. We have money. We have rights. For Paul, both of these groups must be humbled. They must be brought low at the cross. Used this example before, but I love it. It's like two nice cars driving on the 405 in LA during rush hour. Over here, you have the Jewish Ferrari, and over here, you have the Gentile Bentley. The problem is it's bumper to bumper, and it doesn't matter how nice your car is, everybody's going the same speed. So one Christian's in a Ferrari, and the next guy rolls up in a Pinto, but it don't matter how nice your car is, everyone is put on the same level of their need for Christ. So it may seem abrupt, this transition to verse 18, but Paul is coming now as sort of a prophetic courtroom speech to level all the pride and pretense of these two groups. He starts with the privileged Gentiles. Don't miss that. Paul's Jewish. He was a rabbi, but he starts with the Gentiles because they are in the place of privilege and power. Their money, their Roman citizenship, their status in the empire. And he says, you need to check your pride. I mean, Rome is great. Rome is the world's superpower. But it's like Paul's saying, it won't be forever. And yet Jesus is the king who will reign forever. So check your pride. His aim is therefore 
pastoral. But his words are also a bit of a parable. Again, this text has been abused in many a church as if Paul here is speaking directly to and about Christian people. He's not. He's not. His words are parable. They're allegorical. He is talking to the Christians of Rome, but he's speaking, as it were, hypothetically about what happens in Gentile nations when sin is unrestrained. And thank God the world's gotten in some ways a lot better than it used to be, but he probably has his eye on the book of Daniel, the the four great nations of the book of Daniel, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and the Roman Empire. And of course, the Romans would allow a certain amount of peace as they went about conquering and shedding blood. They would allow some peace as long as you played by their rules. But if you didn't play by their rules, your head was on a stake. And so he's saying to these Christians in Rome, look, Don't put your trust in yourself or in the powers of the world. You know where those things lead. You know the trajectory. That those things always end up with a very few people in power dehumanizing those who are inconvenient. Whether it's those who are weak or those who are ethnically despised. We have some great examples of this in the 20th century. Between Mao, Stalin, Lenin, and Germany. Whenever we discard God... All of a sudden, those who are able to be discarded, those who are weak or frustrating or we despise or are inconvenient, all of a sudden, they are discardable. This was real to them. The emperor Claudius had just kicked the Jews out of Rome and finally allowed them back in. And Paul's saying to the Gentiles, don't go that way. When man is a law unto himself, it always leads to rebellion and therefore injustice. And I think it's important to say in our day, that one of Paul's main concerns here is justice. Righteousness could be translated covenant justice. This is a hard truth to swallow, but here's what Paul is saying. When man tries to invent his own justice, even if he calls it justice, it always ends up as injustice, wherein the elite and powerful are favored and others are crushed. But the justice of God is shown to us In Jesus Christ. So will you trust me as I walk with you? His second point then is, will you you trust me because I must warn you of some things? What is Paul up to? He's laying a foundation here, but how is he going to do it? It's a simple contrast. If you read the text again, he's giving us a contrast between the way of unrighteousness and the way of righteousness. There are two ways to walk, two righteousnesses, and they both have different ends. Not all roads lead to Rome. And Paul says, here's how the way of unrighteousness unfolds. It begins in the garden. It begins with a lie. It begins with the serpent sidling up on your shoulder, pretending he likes you, right before he condemns you and whispers your shame. But before that, he looks you in the eye and goes, did God really say I mean, did God really say you will surely die? God's holding out on you. God doesn't, I mean, look around. You you can do this on your own. You can be good enough. You can be happy. You're a nice person. You will not surely die. So the way of unrighteousness says, I don't like what God says. I don't trust that he knows me and loves me and has a way for my fullness and flourishing. So what do we do? We have to suppress the truth. Now, it's important to notice here that what we're not suppressing 
is the truth of God on the grounds of a lack of evidence. It's not that God has not given us enough information. No, this suppressing the truth is an act of the will. Paul says God's power and his personal nature are clearly made known in the natural world. From the design of things to the complexity of things to a single human cell to the starry heavens above. And you and I have a lot of friends who are scientists who love Jesus that look at a, at a human cell and go, wow, I mean, it, it's not a philosophical proof for God's existence, but man, that kind of does look pretty complex. That sort of does look pretty designed. Or you stare up at the scars, stars on a dark night and you're overwhelmed with the sense of your own smallness. There must be a God. And yet, I also have a lot of friends who would look at the same cell or the same stars and go, no, I don't think so. Isn't that crazy though? That's crazy that we're thinking about it and that I have a mind and you have a mind and somehow and it's just crazy. Give it enough time and enough heat, enough marbles in a bag shaking around and woo, here we are. Paul says, no, it's clearly revealed. We just don't like what we see. That's the problem. So we suppress it. We don't like what we see. We don't like what it means. If this God is real, one God in three persons, all powerful, all good, who knows us, we're accountable, who died on a cross, who rose from the grave, then we must bow to him. We don't get to be our own gods. So what happens? Suppressing the truth by the act of a will becomes the expression of idolatry, false worship. They exchange the glory of God for a lie. They make little gods instead. Man declares, I am the measure of all things. And once you declare as a man or as a woman, I am the measure of all things, then according to your subjective desires in the moment, all things are therefore permissible. All things are permissible. And Paul says this unrestrained sin brings about the blooming of deep decay, entropy, Things moving east of Eden, away from the presence of God, from garden back to chaos. And that's how this chapter is laid out. It's threefold. It begins with the heart. Never, never does it begin with our parts, external stuff, you know, what you do. Jesus says, out of the heart come all these wicked things, Matthew 15. It's not about what you eat or what you drink. So it begins with our hearts. He moves to our bodies and our passions, but it ends with the hardening of our minds. And Paul says this has serious consequences. And then he uses this very difficult non-PC in 2019 word, wrath. So we have to talk about wrath. Wrath is not like our anger. I, I want to confess to you, and I'm, I'm sorry. I'm a shepherd and I'm trying to be holy, but I'm also a sheep who's full of holes and needs Jesus that sometimes I struggle with anger. I guess I'm the only one. <laughs> sometimes I struggle with anger. I mean, I, I say things I shouldn't say. And you know what? That's really, it's about me. It's about my insecurity. It's about my control. I know all that and I still struggle with it. God's wrath is not like human anger. God is not blowing up at someone because he's mad or they've inconvenienced him. Wrath is a word, it's a rich word. Go back and read the resonance in the bulletin today. 
It really has more to do with God's jealous love in protecting those who would unknowingly or willfully hurt themselves. You know the saying, Ellie Weitzel, who survived a concentration camp, said there's something much worse than hate. It's called indifference. Indifference is what fully dehumanizes. No, no, God's anger isn't pushing people away like human anger. God's anger is his jealous love for his children when they go astray. And yet we're told that if we do not respond to this offer of grace, then our judgment is deserved. Now what's really scary here is that we're not robots. That God will not coerce us. That God will not force us to love him. In fact, C.S. Lewis, someone asked him, what's it like, Lewis, when someone dies and they spend eternity separated from God? He said, it's a whole lot like unrestrained sin and God giving you exactly what you want. God giving you over to what you want. He will not coerce us. And so we see in this text that as things go from bad to worse, people are given over. Sin always takes us farther than we want to go. We think we can manage it. One of the biggest problems we have in church is sin management. I can manage it. And then we show up on Sundays. We look okay. Paul says, no, it will always take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. It will cost more than you want to pay. And so I pirated this quote from our friend Doug Swaggerty. God cannot and does not ignore our sin. Indeed, he honors our response. Yet he allows things that put us on notice. Our idols become clues. Clues to what could destroy us. What are the things that we won't give up? What are the things that we couldn't give up? Where are we finding our core identity outside of God in anything else? Our idols are clues and our addictions are warnings. Where do we go to cope, to hide, to forget, or for dopamine? These are places where we are trading the glory and power of God for the love of something else that we know will not satisfy. And here's the scary thought. God will give us what we think we want and need. So that's the way of unrighteousness, but there's a way of righteousness. The way of righteousness says, I see where that leads. I look in history. I look in my own heart. I look at the Gentile nations. I, I look at my own failures and struggles, and I see where that road, I've tried. And I see where that road leads. The way of righteousness says, I see my need, even the difficult parts to see. And I cry out to Jesus. It says that my primary identity is in no other thing, but my heart, my soul, and my body belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And his good word has final authority over all things. Finally, Paul brings us back to the start. That simple question, will you trust me? That I will walk with you? That I must warn you for your good? But lastly, this. So we saw the what, we saw the how. But you, honestly, you miss everything if you miss this. Literally everything is missed. We must see the why. Will you trust me? Because I truly want you. As if God was speaking this to us. 
Will you trust me because I truly want you? Paul's deepest concern is for the care of souls. The question is posed, will you trust me? But Paul's point is simply that God is trustworthy. That if we trust him, he will meet us in those things. He will be faithful. So that no matter where you are on the list, no matter what your struggle is, there's, there's hope. God hasn't gathered us here to beat us up, but to lift us up. Romans 2, 4. We'll get to that next week when we attempt to decimate, you know, the religious people who are judgmental in the church. He says kindness. It's the kindness of God, the mercy of God that leads to repentance. So yeah, you know, God, God may give us over to those things, but by faith, simple faith, faith as small as a mustard seal, he never gives us up. And you have missed this text if you do not see the mercy and the patience of God to continue calling people to himself generation after generation, speaking his word forth, I love you, I made you, come to me. So yes, I will walk with you. And yes, I must warn you, but we miss everything if we don't hear God say, but I truly want you. I truly want you as my child. I want you in my kingdom. And that leaves us with two questions. First of all, will we repent? Will we repent of our unrighteousness? Will we consider the scriptures, the examples that Paul gives? Some of us in this room are struggling with these things, have been our whole lives. Did God bring you here this morning to compound your shame? Did God bring you here this morning to be like, yeah, I know you've been struggling with that, and I've been wagging my finger at you for so long, about to give you the boot right out this church. Is that why the Lord brought us here to his mercy and his grace and his table? No. Paul shows us these things as an opportunity to believe. And guys, we don't get to hobby horse any of these. We don't get to hide our own respectable sins because we think the sin of somebody else is bigger than ours. By the way, if you think that, you're the worst sinner. That's pride. At the same time, as we struggle, as we wrestle, remember the whole idea of God's covenant faithfulness to Jacob whose new name is Israel, is wrestle with me, struggle with me. Will we call sin what God calls sin? Or will we conveniently leave out the parts that we don't like? Look, whatever is your struggle on the list, whether it's little or whether it's big, we are not to be the ones who judge, but to turn. To turn to Jesus in the hope of salvation, because but by the grace of God go us all. So will we repent? Question one. Question two, will we cling to Jesus? There's a problem with turning and repenting. Repent means turn. Here's the problem. If you've been wounded, if you've been broken, if you've been struggling for a long time with hidden stuff that nobody knows about, but I do know, I assume all of you are screwed up. If we turn to Jesus, what will we see? Because you've tried it before. You told someone your struggle and they, they judged you or they, they distanced themselves from, from you. They moved away from you. They were repulsed by you. You're repulsed by yourself, perhaps. So if we turn, if we repent, if we trust this God, 
What will we see? And here's the best news of the whole passage. We are sinners. There will be wrath. That wrath is deserved for our sin. The only question at the end of this text is, will you stand in your own strength and in your own power? Will you be the one in your own works to bear that wrath? Or when you turn, will you see Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, who has borne our wrath for us? Will we exchange the glory of God for our own lives? Or will we receive the gift of God freely and be exchanged for the gift of His Son? Will you stand in your own deeds or will you be saved in the death of Christ? Will you trust me? The invitation stands. Will we trust ourselves in the way of unrighteousness or will we hear the good news of the way of righteousness and put our full trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf? Will you trust me? Let our answer be yes. Let's pray. Father, it's hard to trust you, actually. There's a lot of things in here that I don't like. There's things in here that, that reveal my struggles. There's things in here that I don't even think should be struggles. There's challenging words to my own soul to my brothers and sisters that I love. But Lord, I pray you would help us to trust you because your gospel is good news. It's your covenant justice, your righteousness revealed. It's power to set us free in Jesus. So even as we receive this warning, Lord, please remind us it is not a bait and switch. It is not fire and brimstone. It is the loving, merciful words of a great physician. And Jesus, you don't speak these things to us and then kick us out of the room. You don't speak these things to us and then leave us alone to, to wallow. No, you, you fight off all of our enemies, all the voices of shame and condemnation and accusation, all the lies, and you hold us and you sustain us because we know that through Christ, you do truly, deeply want us. And that is enough. That is enough. So Lord, help us to trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.